pastor's message this morning is entitled, To the Praise of God Alone. And the scripture reference is Romans chapter 11, verses 28 through 36. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, <clears throat> even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways are past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him... And through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we are humbled before you as we ought to be this morning. And so humble us further in your word. We could never before you uh, lack when we see our desperate need of you and when we stand in awe of you and we see so little of ourselves, and we see Christ, and we, we marvel in trust in him, and so follow him. Lord, when we see how you work in history, we are brought low. We are brought to the point where we know nothing save the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a good place to be. Lord, you confound the wise. You bring the things that Man boasts into nothing, so that you alone might be our only boast, and our only praise will go to you, and we delight in that truth. And so teach us it this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're finishing up, God willing, today, uh, this, not only this chapter, but the sequence of chapters from chapter 9 to 11 and which we've seen the surprising way in which God acts in history and in redemption as the sovereign God of all creation. Jesus said in John 4.22 that salvation is of the Jews. And Paul said back in chapter 9, 4-5, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, to them being Israel. The giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But all these benefits to Israel, without faith in Christ, demonstrates what Paul has proven, that a very small portion of Israel to this very day is the true Israel. The true Israel are those who receive the promises and all the benefits and all that was promised to Abraham before them, to their forefather, when they received Jesus Christ. And that's by the grace of God that they receive it. 
not through them being related to Abraham, not to their boast in their Jewishness or their Israeli ancestry. Like Jesus said in John chapter 8, they who boasted that they were children of Abraham, he said in their unbelief they were akin to their father the devil. Because they did not receive Jesus, they did not know Abraham, their father, according to the flesh, and they did not know God as their father. But it was also God's promise to Abraham that in him all the families or all the nations, and the nations there mean the goyim, the, the Gentiles, would be blessed. Genesis 12.3. And so Paul, since chapter 9, but especially in chapter 11, has shown how both how God has worked back and forth in this seesaw sort of God-appointed history to redeem people, both Jews and Gentiles, in his own way, saving an elect of Israel after hardening the rest, but in their hardness, saving the Gentiles, and through his mercy towards the Gentiles, saving some of Israel to, because of their jealousy. And we learned last week that that is not cease. God's back and forth uh, way of saving sinners between Gentile and Jew in, his, in history is not ceased. And in one day, there will be a fulfillment of the Gentiles who are saved. And at that time, we learned last week that all Israel will be saved. Now, I said last week, and this is a sort of humbling realization on my way home uh, from the service last week from the church, I remembered what I had said regarding Paul's statement of the fullness of Gentiles. Till the full no- fullness of the Gentiles come, comes in, at that time, all Israel will be saved. And I said that statement or that phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles, regards all the elect of God's people of the Gentile people. And as I was thinking about it on the way home, that was very different from how I had been interpreting all the other general statements regarding people groups in this chapter. If you'll recall, Paul is speaking generally when he speaks of Israel. From verse 11 down, he's speaking of, of Israel in general terms. And he's speaking of them there in their unbelief, but we know previously In Israel, there's a remnant of that broader category of Israel that are being saved. And and so he speaks of the Gentiles as, generally speaking, we have believed, but we know that not all Gentiles believe, correct? And so Paul is speaking even in this way, Gentiles in Israel, in a very general way. So that when I come last week and I said to you that we should take it as the fullness of the Gentiles as regarding the elect, meaning every single elect Gentile at that point is saved, maybe I'm not being consistent to require us to view that as every last Gentile that will be saved. Maybe what Paul is referring to is that at that point in redemptive history, God's people would not be known primarily as Gentiles who come to faith in Christ, although there are some still, but rather God's people at that time, it will be known that they are of the Israeli descent. 
who come to him primarily. And so we don't have to necessarily see that according to the way we've already interpreted Paul's usage of these terms generally, which is the right way to view them. We don't have to view all Gentiles being saved as the very last elect of the Gentile people at that time are saved. We can understand that according to the same interpreting rules that we've already seen Paul demonstrate as regarding at that time perhaps the full inclusion of the Gentiles means at that time the church will be known in majority as Israeli believers rather than Gentile believers. That's a parenthesis for this week. I, I want to admit this to you. This chapter has been the hardest chapter for me to preach through, to really get a, a, a real conviction on because I see so many biblical people, great preachers and great teachers, even of the same ilk, going, no, this says that, no, this says that, no, this says that. And as I come to it, I see the validity of those arguments. And so what you're receiving from me, although I have come to these conclusions, I come to these conclusions humbly before you and lay them out before you. And maybe that's the point of the chapter. (laughs) Maybe that's the point of it all. To have us coming to these scriptures saying, God, if it's not for you, we cannot decipher them. If it's not for your spirit in us, we are going to have a hard time coming to the same mind and the same conclusions in them. And and may I say, that's not a bad thing. When we come to the end of what this chapter and what this section of Romans Paul is doing to us and for us, yes, he is trying to reveal this mystery so we understand it, but in that mystery, he is trying to humble us by it. So I admit my humility before you here. But we see this back and forth pattern of salvation being played out in the scope of redemptive history as Paul has revealed it by the Holy Spirit. And it's my conviction that indeed this inspired apostle has revealed these things in order to remove any accusation of unfaithfulness against God and any boasting in ourselves. In verses 28 through 29, the apostle now continues what he laid out last week regarding a future salvation for the mass, for the majority of Israel, that this indeed is the will of God. And so first this morning, the first point is Israel beloved by grace. Verses 28 and 29, Romans 11, 28 and 29. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, it's important, again, that we understand Paul's usages of the pronouns here. Again, it's very clear that when he's speaking of this second person, you and your, he's speaking to the Gentiles. The third person, they and their, he's speaking of the Jews. He's been doing this all the way back since verse 13, very clearly. As regards the gospel, he says, they The Jews or Israel are enemies for your sake. Now, there are two senses in which we should understand that they, the the Israel, are enemies for your sake. And the first is in conjunction with how Paul describes the salvation coming to the Gentiles all the way back in verse 11, 11 when he says, 
Rather, through their trespass, through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And he repeats that again in verses 12 and 15 and again in the olive, brand, olive tree analogy. And what he's saying is their failure to believe, their failure of obedience has fallen out to your salvation. And that's what we mean when we see here in verse 28, for your sake. And what we should think there when we see for your sake is for your benefit, they are enemies. They are enemies of the gospel for your benefit. And and here's the irony of that statement. They're enemies of the gospel, which makes them enemies of you who have believed the gospel and of God whose gospel it is, but it's for your benefit. Because this has turned out for your salvation. Isn't that the irony of how the gospel works in the world? If you believe on me, if you follow me, you're going to have to leave father and mother and brother and sister and sons and daughters behind. They're not all going to follow me. And so by gaining Christ, we lose placement. We lose respectability in the world. We lose even family. We lose friends. We humble ourselves in order to gain Christ. This is how the gospel works. Second, we should understand it as Paul describes in Philippians chapter 3. In two two ways he describes the enemies of the gospel there. First in verses 2 and 3 describes them as dogs. Beware of them. The Those who mutilate the flesh, he calls them. These Jewish false teachers that would come into the church and add to the gospel legal ramifications that if you'll just follow these these Mosaic covenantal uh, forms and expressions, then you will be acceptable before God. And Paul says these are those who just mutilate the flesh. There's no benefit to following them. They will only bring you into condemnation. But he describes them again in verse 13. I believe he's describing them again in verse 18 of Philippians chapter 18, or chapter 3, verse 18. Walk, these are they that walk as enemies of the cross, enemies of the gospel. And he says of them, their God is their belly, their appetite, and they glory in their shame, which may be an allusion to their mutilation of the flesh for no purpose. It does them no good because there's no inward change in them with minds set on earthly things, not on heavenly things. In our text, Paul would be describing Israel again, speaking of the majority, generally speaking of Israel, as enemies of God because they reject the gospel. And I think both of these, that we benefit from their unbelief and that they are at the same time enemies, are true. As regards election, he says, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So although we just read that they are enemies, which benefits us Gentiles now, he says this, but as regards election, but there is a contrast, isn't it? So at the same time, we are reading that they are enemies because they have not received the gospel. They are beloved. It's contrasting that they're enemies, but they're still beloved. As regards election. 
But as regards election, what does that mean? Well, election is that overarching saving purpose of God to a particular chosen people, even down to individuals. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Isaac and not Ishmael was the promised son of Abraham. Paul is saying that even though Israel is in unbelief at this time and therefore enemies of the gospel, God's purpose in election, chapter 9, verse 11, will stand as he's already revealed it back in verse 25, when all Israel, verse 26, rather, all Israel will be saved. There is still a future for Israel because God's purposes in election for them stands. Now, it has been Paul's purpose all along and all since the beginning of chapter 9 to dispel any notion that it is because someone who is an Israelite is, genetically speaking, of the race of Israel or the child of Abraham, genetically speaking, that they can boast that they are a child of Abraham. It's been his purpose to say, our race does not benefit us before God. Our genetics don't mean anything before God. Chapter 9, verse 7 and 8. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. In fact, Paul is describing God's electing love towards Israel because of his electing love and promises given first to the patriarchs. That's what he says here. They are beloved, agape toy, for the sake of their forefathers. Now, this is exactly what conclusion we come to when we read in, verses 20, in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For, so what is Paul saying here? <clears throat> what he's saying is that when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and all Israel will be saved, the reason, the reason for the salvation of that mass of Israel is due to God's promises. Listen, it's due to his promises. It's his word that he's upholding. It's not because he sees anything in them that commends them before God. That's not the way of salvation for any creature. It's because he promised. It's because his word was given and he will keep his word. The gifts and the calling of God, the callings of God are irrevocable. They cannot be taken away. They cannot be removed. And so these promises given so long ago to the father Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob subsequently that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That is true even of Israel and in God's plan he's going to demonstrate very clearly that relates to Israel by this massive salvation that he has planned at the end of this age before Christ returns. So when all Israel will be saved, it will once again, and here's the purpose, I think, of Paul revealing this. It will once again be demonstrated that God's word has not failed. This is his purpose from the beginning of chapter 9. God's word has not failed. And now he's saying in this purpose for God saving Israel at the end of the age, at the fullness of the Gentiles when that comes in, this is according to the word of God. 
Secondly, the world is saved by God's mercy. The world saved by God's mercy. Verses 30 and 32. For just as you Gentiles, and I'm adding Gentiles so you, you know that's what he's saying here were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, Israel's, disobedience. So too have they now, so too have now been, so they too have now been disobedient in, or, disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now, in the way described above, in this age, receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. These verses essentially play back the Apostle's argument from verses 12 onward in this chapter. But they also play back the depravity that he's already concluded that all are under sin. All are under the condemnation of unrighteousness. This is a seesaw of redemptive history in a nutshell. Three observations I want to bring out from these verses. First, disobedience. Notice he he says only disobedience. He doesn't say obedience ever in this context. Only disobedience. Disobedience is a categorical term here. This disobedience is not limited merely to those who have broken God's law covenant. It's not merely to those who are Israel. It, It also relates here in the context to the Gentiles. It speaks of those who are categorically removed from God, relationally, savingly, covenantally, because of their unrighteousness. Romans 3, 9, and 10, Paul summarized the state of mankind as a whole. What then? Are Jews any better off than the Gentiles? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. In fact, the Greek word that's translated uh, disobedience here can be translated unbelief, as we heard as Jim read, such that being in a position of unbelief is to be in a position of disobedience. The Greek word has to do with a hardness of being outside of the will of God. John 3.36 gives us a really good allusion to how this word can act in, in relationship to faith. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, and there's the same Greek word that Paul here is using that we translate disobedience or unbelief. Whoever does not obey, so not obey contrasts belief there. Do you see that? It's the same Greek word. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Therefore, by disobedience, Paul means something like he says in Ephesians chapter 2 when he describes people in their natural condition of those who were dead in their trespasses and sin. Sons of disobedience. Those who had no hope because they were without God in the world. And Paul is saying that is what God's purpose is for both the Gentiles and the Jews to know That apart from the mercy of God, the grace of God, you are all in that condition. You are all without hope because you're without God in the world. Because you're all in disobedience. Both to the Jew and to the Gentile. This is the condition of mankind before his creator. Every one of us. And notice, secondly, that our disobedience as mankind, is contrasted not with obedience, but with mercy. 
with the mercy of God. That is important. This agrees with the way of justification by faith alone in the gospel. This agrees with what everything Paul has argued for in chapters 1 through 8. The great theme of Romans. The only way our unrighteousness, and again in verse 10, chapter 10, the only way our unrighteousness before God can be forgiven is by the mercy of God. The only way we can go from the standing of disobedience to being part of God's people is by the mercy of God. Our adherence to the law could never change anything regarding our standing before God. Through the knowledge of God, is, through the, the law is the knowledge of sin, Paul says. We know that since God is God, it is Him who shows mercy on whom He wills. The distinguishing aspect between those who are disobedient and those who belong to God is the mere mercy of God here, Paul says. It's God's prerogative to show mercy on whom he wills. Remember the parable that Jesus taught of the owner of the vineyard who goes out and finds workers And he makes a deal with the first that he finds. And he says, I'm going to give you a piece of silver a day for this day's work. Come and work in my my vineyard. And then he goes out later in the morning and he finds more people standing idle. And he says, come, why are you standing idle? Come work in my fields and I'll give you what is right. And then he comes later in the day and later. And and at the end of the day, he calls his servant over and he says, give him the day's wages. Give him all this same wage and the one who was there first they said hey (laughs) we've been working all day in the toil of the heat and now you call this person later in the day at this hour after all we've been through and you've given them the same that you're giving us what does Jesus say the master will say will you judge me having done with what is mine to show mercy You see, in giving the same thing to the ones who came after the agreed upon amount, it was mercy. But he can do what he wills with what is his, is Jesus' point. God may show mercy because mercy belongs to God and it is his to show. And if it is required that God show it, then it is not mercy. But here is how Jews and Gentiles are saved alike, is Paul's point. It's by the mercy of God. It's not who your father is. Children in this church, it's not who your mother is. It's God that shows mercy. And he has shown mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, God's purpose in redemption is that the redeemed know that we are saved by his mercy alone. You see, this is his purpose in revealing all of this. It's not just so that we can peer into uh, a futuristic uh, mode of mentality to where we're just, we're keyed in and we're ready for for this this end of days to happen and, and then... And then, so we're in the know, we're not part of the ignorant ones. 
It is for us to know the will of God. But it's for us to worship God. What he has revealed is for us and for our children, but it can never be merely this is a far off thing. It always is revealed so that we will glory in him and boast in him. The purpose for it is coming up, isn't it? In verse 32, for God has consigned all, and by all he means Israel and the Gentiles alike, to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all, meaning Israel and Gentiles alike, speaking generally again, who call upon the Lord. Now, one of the overarching purposes of the New Testament and Paul and Romans thus far is to denounce any boasting in any individual's or nation's physical advancement before God. We have no boast in ourselves. We have no boast in our people group. Nobody does. And that's exactly where he winds up here. Everybody's in disobedience. And this is God's purpose in all of this revelation to consign all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Do you know the only way that mercy will come to a people is if they know that they are in disobedience before God? There is no mercy for the righteous. And by that, I mean the self-righteous. This is the horrible state that I believe the West is in as a people. This country is in as a people. We don't see our state of unrighteousness before God, and we will never humble ourselves before Him until we do. And things will not get better. Beloved, things will not get better in this nation if Trump is our president, if we do not humble ourselves before God. They will not get better if Biden is our president, if we do not humble ourselves before God. This is a purpose of God in all of history, in the whole history of redemption. You look back at the history of Israel in the, New, in the Old Testament, and you will see that as soon as they were exalted, God would humble them. And in that exalted place, there would be no salvation. There would only be idolatry and waywardness, and sin would be rampant among the covenant people of God because of their pride and their arrogance. God will humble people, but here is the mercy of God to bring us there because it's in that place that we can receive the mercy of God, where we depend on the mercy of God. Now, I need to warn you that Paul is not teaching in verse 32 a universal salvation, meaning a salvation for everyone indiscriminately Everyone will be saved. Some universalists who believe that everyone will be saved, no matter what you do with Jesus, no matter what the mercy of God is towards particular people, or as he has revealed it, that they take this scripture and they say, see, everyone's in disobedience, so God will have mercy on everyone and save everyone. Not only do they not follow Paul's pattern of speaking, that he's speaking generally 
God's accounted everyone in disobedience. Who he shows mercy to is his point. Right? Generally speaking to the Gentiles and to Israel, not every individual will be saved. He's made that clear throughout. But it's abundantly clear here that Paul is speaking to maintain the gospel witness so that sinners would believe it with the assurance that God will save them according to his word. It's his purpose to warn of the faith-destroying effects of pride in the heart. It is to exalt the saving plan of God to show mercy to sinners of every people group through his sin. Such purposes would be useless if universalism is true. Believers or not would be saved. The, The word of God being true or not wouldn't matter. In all... All being saved means the truth of Scripture, the Scriptures as a whole, would be useless because they are showing these truths that have to be held in consistency in order for people to be saved, sinners to be saved. Without these truths, without these definable and and distinguishing truths, there is no salvation, is Paul's concern and that's why he's revealing them and without these truths God is not seen to be glorious you see it is this God who moves in ways that men cannot determine that makes him God how does the spirit work he works like the wind And no man knows where he comes, and no man knows where he goes, and yet we, our eternal future, is determined on how he works to convert us, to bring us new saving life. New birth is determinate upon how God works, and we see here in this context that according to how God works defines who God is, and God does not work how we define him to work. He does not work how we expect him to work. Did you listen to what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? He's not saving the best and the brightest. (laughs) You look at the mirror and you know that's true. As I look at you, I know... No, I'm not going to say that. As I look at myself, I know that's true. God does not do things the way that we require or think that he should do things so that we know that it is God who is doing it. He's doing everything to bring the wisdom of men to nothing and those who boast in man to nothing. He's doing everything so that those whom he shows mercy to knows that we are to glory in him alone. And don't we know it? Where would we be without the mercy of God? We would be without hope. You know, one of the most disappointing things about this week that I saw with those people storming the Capitol is they are equivocating their support for Donald Trump with their trust in Jesus. They have crosses and they have Trump And they're equivocating Trump as our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no comparison. I don't care what side of the aisle you are on. If you are trusting in Donald Trump, you need to repent. There was no repentance. There was no revival in our country while he was president. 
Even with COVID, there was no humility in this country. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I voted for the man, and I'm going to say that here to tell you I'm not his enemy, but my hope is not in that man. And it's not lost because Biden will be our president. Our hope is steadfast, and it is sure, and is not wavering with the times. This nation will be part of what is shaken, and the kingdom of Christ will remain. And maybe God is doing this so that we would be humbled and we would be brought low to remember that and to glory only in the Lord and to boast only in the Lord. We are not followers of men. We follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will not be dismayed. And we will not be destroyed. And we will not be let down because Christ died already in our place, the love of God. He was buried and he rose again. And there is no vanity in following him to the ends of the earth. Even if the world rages against us, even if my children don't know what it's like to grow up in a free country, I will yet praise the Lord. That doesn't mean we don't pray for godly leaders. That doesn't mean we don't pray for peace. We need to keep praying. We need to keep doing what we can to see that that happens in this country. But if that seemingly is going away, and it has been incrementally for years, not just this year, we need to say, blessed be the name of the Lord while he brings us low, while he humbles us in the face of the world. Because that's where salvation comes, when we are humbled. This is the way that God works in history. We don't know what he's doing now, beloved. But he's merciful. To those who were without hope because we were without God, now we are the people of God. We stand upon the solid rock, our Lord Jesus Christ, the cornerstone that was rejected. We are built upon him. Temple. The body of Christ, all authority in heaven and earth is given to him, and he is our head. This world is not doing anything outside of his control. Christ is Lord. Let's rejoice in that. The purpose of God in this text, in chapters 9 through 11 is to keep the redeemed humble before him, to create in us a continual awe and reverent worship towards him who saves sinners according to the counsel of his own will, by grace through faith in his only Son, for his own glory. And this is not just the message of Romans 9 through 11. It is the whole scriptural story from beginning to end. God isn't a God of our imaginations. He doesn't do what we think he's going to do in every turn. And yet in every turn, he shows himself to be God. And the scriptures make sure that we know that from beginning to end. This purpose of God we know. To have us who were formally in disobedience to say in full agreement with the apostle at the end of this chapter, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And now he quotes, I find this so incredible, he quotes at least in part Job twice in verses 34 and 35. Listen to who he quotes, Job, 
You know what Job is all about? A man who had everything and who was faithful to God and everything is taken away and Job is not knowing what's going on and all the while he's speaking and he's speaking and he's speaking and when God finally speaks, you know what Job does? He shuts his mouth and he says, I spoke before, I'm not speaking anymore. I don't know what you're doing in the world, but I know that my Redeemer lives and at the end I will see him face to face. Listen to this. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You know what that implies? Every good thing, every perfect thing is from above. If you've received any good thing from God, it's by the mercy of God. But we have received more than just any good thing. We have received everything by his mercy, including his son. From him and through him and to him are all things. The end of all things, the beginning of all things, the purpose of all things abound to this end. To him be glory forever. To him be glory forever. In the end, chapters 9 through 11, while undergirding God's faithfulness to his word, to his people, serves to humble our would-be pride and raises our hearts in reverent adoration to our great God, who is God, and to his amazing grace upon us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name together this morning. We need, it's good for us to be humbled. While we don't pray for persecution, in fact, we pray for for religious freedom, we pray that in the face of this new administration, our rights as Christians to worship you openly and freely and, and not have our speech condemned when we speak the truth in Christ and we speak the truth of your word, Lord. We, we pray that we would still have those freedoms, Lord, and you are at work. You are at work to humble us as a nation. You are at work to humble us as a people, even us as a church in this nation. And in the West, you are at work, and it's a good place for us to be. It's a good place for us to know that our hope isn't in this nation. Our hope isn't in waking up tomorrow and knowing that even our Constitution stands. Our hope, even though we're thankful for those things, our hope is only in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's on Christ the solid rock that we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so I pray that as we see how you've worked in redemptive history, we would close our mouths to object to what you're doing now. We would not accuse you. We would not boast of anything in ourselves, but we would be humbled and we would seek your mercy, the mercy that we are saved by the mercy that provided our Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy that changed our hearts to receive him, the mercy that receives those sinners who come to you by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We thank you for your mercy, and we depend on it and for all things. In Jesus' name, amen.